Hello again, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. This is episode number 11 in our current series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus, based on my latest book by the same title. That book is available on Amazon.com in paperback, hardback, and Kindle editions. So you might have noticed that I missed an episode in posting uh, a podcast last week. Uh, It's because I've been dealing with some health challenges. Well, uh, if that happens again in the next week, or I get busy with some family activities, uh, because Christmas is a little more than a week away, let me wish you a very Merry Christmas. Regardless of when it actually happened, the birth of my master is a big deal. (laughs) It's his birthday celebration. Have you ever stopped to think about how that birth has affected the world? Think about, you know, for example, just even the unbelievers in the world today that stop and celebrate at Christmas. Of course, they're all celebrating for their various reasons and motivations, but it's only because of the birth of Jesus that all that celebrating started. I'm sure Satan takes great pleasure in all of the commercialization and the distractions from what the holiday is really all about, you know, the the coming of the Son of God to this earth the first time. But at the same time, just think about it. Because of the birth of Jesus, 2,000 years later, all over the world today, people are stopping and celebrating something. That's the impact of Jesus. And it's quite an impact. Anyway, we've been talking about what the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, have to say about the purpose and function of when the called out of Jesus gather in his name. Today, this episode, we're going to be moving on from the Gospels to the book of Acts, which records the earliest account of the history of the ecclesia, what many call the church. Dr. Luke, the author of the Gospel by the same name, and of the book of Acts, starts off his account of history in the book of Acts by stating the following. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's Luke's stated goal in the books that he wrote to provide an accurate historical account of the life of Jesus, and the same regarding the significant events that took place in the first years after Jesus ascended to heaven. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that the book of Acts should represent anything more than a warts and all historical accounting of what took place in the years following the ascension of Jesus. It's not a how-to instruction manual. It's not a book of formulas that, if we were to try to reproduce the actions of the characters found in the narrative, we should expect the same results as what they experienced. That was a unique time. I am guilty, like countless Christians, of previously reading Acts looking for answers on how the church should operate today. 
I'm at fault of superimposing God's will for the apostles over what I thought God's will for my own life was. In that way, I tried to make the book of Acts about me. How was I supposed to apply the book of Acts to my life? I failed to recognize that God was accomplishing something different in the years immediately following Jesus' first coming than he's now accomplishing in the years prior to his second coming. But Acts, it's a history of real, not allegorical events. It's not a fantasy. People and events normally make it into a historical narrative not because they represent normal circumstances, but because they stand out. They are remarkable. I mean, pick a Bible character. That man or woman did not make it into the Bible because it was just another normal day in the life of an ancient Middle Easterner. Something happened to them that was out of the ordinary. Something that may have never occurred before in history, and likely was something that will never happen again in the same way. Thus, the Bible documents supernatural or unnatural events, things that are not normal, but rather paranormal. Well, why is it then that many of us read the Bible in a way that we expect to have something occur in our lives that is unnatural and out of the ordinary enough to be worthy of mention in the Bible? Hundreds of years passed between miracles mentioned in the Bible. Even in the life of the main Bible characters, as far as we know, decades passed between hearing from God or seeing a miracle. Yet, somehow, we think these heroes of the Bible were walking around experiencing God in supernatural ways all the time. We're told by some, who tend to look at faith as though it's some kind of a force, rather than belief to expect miracles. But if we can expect miracles in this current age we're living in, just like we can expect the sun to rise tomorrow, then miracles become no miracles at all. They become normal and natural occurrences. Yet living a life where we can expect on-demand miracles of biblical proportions, if we only follow the biblical formulas, that's never occurred in all of history. It just don't happen. I know, doesn't happen. Don't happen. If we're supposed to pattern church today, after the book of Acts, bring forth the apostles and let the miracles, signs, and wonders God credentialed them with begin. Should we really expect to experience the same things today as when the people who walked with Jesus and were personally appointed by him to speak and act on his behalf still walk the earth? Do we not see the difference between the authority and the abilities of the apostles of Jesus and a 21st century pastor? Please don't misunderstand. As much as the book of Acts is historical documentation of unusual events that we can't count on routinely occurring now, Acts documents that God does occasionally work in unusual, non-routine, and unexpected supernatural ways according to his purposes. He does whatever is necessary to accomplish his will, whether he uses people or the miraculous. He does not treat every situation the same. The book of Revelation is full of supernatural phenomena that he is yet to accomplish.
If you've never done this before, please read the book of Acts just as though you're reading a history. A history of unusual things that really happened, but history. It's tough for some to set aside looking at Acts as a how-to manual or to apply what occurred to the people mentioned in Acts to our own lives now. But if you can pull it off, it's amazing what will jump out at you. And you might be amazed to find what's missing. It's any instructions on how to do church. Anything we've taken away from Acts that we have believed is prescriptive on how we do church today is not because of an authoritative biblical or apostolic mandate, but because we've assumed that we should try to emulate what was going on in the primitive ecclesia, the first church. And when we do this, we're trying to base a pattern for the normal way we interact now as a church on a series of one-offs. It's no wonder why nothing ever seems to work, at least for long, when we try to do those things. The results we seek are always either elusive or unsustainable. Please, don't look at this like I'm saying that the Bible is a failure, that you're doing what the Bible says and Doug says that it can't work. No, what I'm saying is that the book of Acts was not meant to be taken as a formula to follow and then expect success from it. I mean, show me any church that has followed what happened in the first century and they're continuing to do it. You know, they're sharing all things in common and they're all, everything's just going swimmingly like it did in the days following Pentecost. That just won't happen because this is historical documentation on how... God's church, the ecclesia, got off to its start. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, specifically address the unique events that occurred at Pentecost as recorded in the book of Acts and the days and the months that followed in the next episode. The rest of this episode, I want to look at what happened in the years that followed that period. So I'm going to jump ahead in time a little bit and then come back to the specific days that followed Pentecost. So first, let's jump up to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Now again, all of the stuff that I'm covering in this series needs to directly pertain in some way to um, the ecclesia, the gathering together, the organization, the foundation, uh, the function, the purpose of the ecclesia. So uh, we find ourselves jumping up to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, verses 1 to 6 is where I'm looking at now. Uh, In Acts... Chapter 6, 1 to 6, we read that the number of new converts to Christianity that were hanging around Jerusalem had grown so large that it was causing logistical problems. The apostles were being spread thin. Their time was too precious to be taking care of the business that could be attended to by others. So, because of the workload, helpers were appointed. Seven men were given the responsibility for watching out for the needs of the disciples who were hanging around Jerusalem. (laughs) They were lingering there before heading home. They thought something big was still going to be happening. Well, the appointment of helpers, this ad hoc group, who can be thought of as pastors or deacons, again, pastors in the classic sense, they're shepherds, caretakers, deacons, servants, that appointment was a reaction 
to a problem that had arisen. It was not the institution of a perpetual office in the church. No apostle ever said this. And in each church, let there be seven helpers to serve food, and let the number of the servers not surpass seven, nor let the number be six, unless thou intendest to proceed on to seven. None of the apostles ever said that. As we can read in Paul's letters, people referred to as deacons or helpers or servants were relied upon in other local ecclesias in the early years, presumably because there were routine tasks that needed to be attended to in those places. But rather than thinking of these helpers existing in an official and permanent capacity, because of some kind of a divine mandate handed down by the apostles, it's more appropriate to think of them as a natural response to a problem or a need that arises. They pitched in and they helped. That made them deacons. The underlying need in this case was that one of the principles that Jesus established for his ecclesia was not being met. That is the principle based on his command to love one another. Some of the disciples who remained in Jerusalem were not being adequately loved. The solution of appointing helpers allowed the principle of loving one another to be followed. It also freed up the apostles to fulfill the instruction Jesus gave to them to teach those who have responded to the gospel, the thing that most call the Great Commission. Teaching was in support of why the ecclesia exists, belief in Jesus. The apostles' teaching gave the new disciples greater understanding and an expanded view of what to believe in. The aftermath of Pentecost in Jerusalem was temporary. We have no reason to believe that after the faithful who initially remained in Jerusalem began to return home, that this group of helpers did not also return to their normal lives wherever they lived. There is an exception. We'll talk about that. So, let's move on to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 29, if you want to read that first. Well, as I just stated, when something is noteworthy, enough to be included in the history of the ecclesia, it's probably something that was out of the ordinary. In this case, it's the taking of an offering. In Acts chapter 11, we read the story of a prophet named Agabus, who foretold a coming great famine. The response of individual disciples, according to what they determined they could individually afford, was to send relief to the called out living in the region of Judea. They trusted what they sent to the care and overseeing of the elders living there in Judea. Well, this is another example of reacting in love towards other called out ones when a need arose. There are few such offerings mentioned in the New Testament. Now hear this. Now hear this, right? It was a normal practice to take special offerings in response to specific needs. However, there is nothing indicating that regular routine offerings were ever collected amongst the primal or the first or the primitive ecclesia, the first Christians. Offerings not normal. No indication of that. Let's move on. 
Acts chapter 14, verses 23 to 24, regarding the appointment of elders. Upon returning to cities in which Paul had previously spread the gospel in, Luke says that he, Paul, and Barnabas spent time, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, unquote. Before they left those cities that they were revisiting, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every local ecclesia. Until this point, the only mention of called-out elders was of those who were mentioned in conjunction with the apostles in Jerusalem. You know, the apostles and elders living in Jerusalem. So, Paul and Barnabas could foresee a day when they would leave the region and no longer be available to answer questions, right? They recognized some were more knowledgeable of the gospel than others. The more mature in the faith, and likely the more mature in age, who demonstrated that they could be counted on to accurately portray the gospel and reflect the principles that the ecclesia is to live by, were recognized as elders by Paul and Barnabas. These were the guys who uh, Paul and Barnabas recognized got what they were talking about. Well, later Paul also instructed his protege Titus to recognize elders in every community that he, uh, that he came to where an ecclesia existed. An ecclesia, uh, you know, could be two people. It could be uh, three people. It could be a half a dozen, seldom more than ever, 30. Um, and please remember, keep in mind all this other stuff we've been talking about, how the ecclesia didn't have a particular day that they met on and a place that they definitely didn't have a place that they regularly met in. Anyway, um, wherever, whatever community or larger community, area, geographic region where an ecclesia existed, they would, uh, Titus would recognize elders. Well, Paul's instructions to Titus to appoint elders may have been a response to the deterioration of the communities of ecclesia located in Crete, as he said to Titus that he left them there to put what remained into order. So even elders, establishing elders appears to have been a part of establishing order and, and again, a response to an issue or a problem that had arisen. Recognizing elders who serve as role models and mentors in the faith is a natural response to some of the biblical principles that Jesus established regarding the ecclesia, but Recognizing elders in no way equals establishing a formal office of elder as the result of some kind of artificial process. Paul was a supporter of elders being established as a way of providing quality control for maintaining biblical principles, one of which is teaching sound doctrine which contributes to authentic belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Secondly, those we naturally recognize as elders play an integral part of maintaining the integrity of the local ecclesias through holding others accountable and guarding against deception. Before I move on, please allow me just to ramble a little bit here as I try to piece together some thoughts. But um, almost every formal institutional church will have some sort of a elder selection process and they'll usually go to Timothy, 1 Timothy, and they'll go to uh, Titus, and they'll follow this list of things that uh, Paul wrote 
Timothy and Titus, uh, and uh, and then the the process will be it'll be reviewed by the existing elders, and then the pastor will approve, and then maybe there'll be a congregational vote or whatever, and then they'll appoint an elder for you know two to four years uh, a term, and then they'll do it over whenever somebody else needs to be replaced. So great. Um, that's how the church formally selects elders, and they think that there's really good biblical basis for all of that, that process. But tell me something, when you, as just a, a churchgoer, when you think now of, if you're currently going, of somebody who's at the church who you look up to spiritually, who you believe to be wise in the ways of Jesus and a Jesus lover, Somebody who you wouldn't mind getting advice from if you needed it. They are probably, uh, could be somewhat older than you, a senior member of the faith. When you just think of that person or persons, whether they are male or female, you know, who's coming to mind? Are they the same person that has went through the elder selection process? Because I'll tell you, that person that you thought of is probably a natural elder that you recognized as being an elder in your life. I have elders in my life that have never had hands laid on them and prayed for and ordained as an elder in my life. But I view them as somebody who I would look to for uh, spiritual advice and that I respect that I consider, you know, brothers and sisters in my life. Um, that's more along the lines of what I believe we're talking about here. There should be no term limits on an elder because, after all, you don't get suddenly younger <laughs> or less wise. Uh, you, you can always be called upon for your wisdom. Um, and there is also no reason to think that the number of elders should be limited to whatever, three elders, four elders, five, six, twelve, for those that are trying to do something with uh, biblical numbers. You're going to have as many natural elders as you, as you have wise senior members of the faith in your uh, community, in your fellowship. Anyway, uh, I partially digress, but that's important stuff, and I'm sure that uh, I'll be talking about that more later. So let's move on up to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and talk about Sundays and breaking bread together. Paul had been in a city called Troas for a week. He's getting ready to leave the next day, and everyone knew that time with Paul was short and they couldn't count on seeing him again. So, they were going to miss Paul greatly. They loved Paul. That's the situation when Luke wrote this. Quote, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is one of the central verses in the Bible that people use to support coming together on Sundays to worship. After all, they say the primitive church gathered on, quote, the first day of the week, unquote, and that day was Sunday. And when they did, they, quote, broke bread, unquote, together. Of course, 
after we run breaking bread through our 21st century church culture worldview, this must mean that they received communion. And it sounds like Paul preached a sermon that went on until midnight. All of this indeed sounds like a really long church service. This is the quintessential example of historical documentation not being intended to establish a religious practice. We have no reason to believe that this was the habit of the early church. right? So what if this passage that I just read to you was put this way? Listen to it this way. On Sunday after work, we all got together for our last meal together before Paul had to leave the next day. Paul talked on until midnight. Okay, so this was their last chance to share a meal together with Paul. There was not enough time for Paul to meet with everyone individually. Should the fact the meal took place on Sunday even matter? Sunday was just another working day in places like Troas. Knowing that breaking bread was the common term for sharing a meal, is there anything indicating that a religious ritual took place? No. And is it any surprise that Paul talked on late into the night, given that it was his last chance to speak with the people that he loved dearly, and nobody wanted to say goodbye? Have you ever been in that kind of situation? I have, and it's tough. Using this passage to show how the ecclesia should conduct itself and support the practices of taking communion and meeting on Sundays is a complete misuse of Scripture. There is nothing prescriptive about how this passage reads. That's about it for the book of Acts, except, like I said, in the next episode, we're going to come back and look at the days following the uh, events of Pentecost. But from the book of Romans through Revelation— there's teaching concerning issues within the body of the elect, the ecclesia. Some of it is specific. Most of it is general. There's a great deal of evidence throughout the rest of the New Testament that the practices of the early ecclesia were either based on commonly held Jewish traditions, which were going on long before the day of Pentecost, or they were temporary measures that were in place because of the emergent temporary needs of many people who had stayed beyond what they had planned in Jerusalem. They remained in Jerusalem because they were on a spiritual high, and they needed to be housed and fed while they remained there. Today, sadly, in decreasing numbers, there are still people around who remember what it was like in the days, months, and years following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The anniversary of that was just last week. If the good Dr. Luke were still around, those days might be summarized by him in the following way. Listen to this. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was a great feeling of patriotism and selflessness, and of one accord, people learned to do without the things they had before. They saved their scrap metal and sent it to the great storehouses, And they darkened their windows at night and planted victory gardens. And they did subsist on rations and purchase their foods with coupons. The young men gave themselves to the effort sacrificially, not sparing their lives, 
while the women went to work in the factories. And everyone gave a great deal out of their income, and some even gave 83%. Okay, so life changes after big, significant events. I remember life changing after 9-11. Whether they're good events or bad events, life changes. Even though it may take time to recover, changes are normally temporary. As patriotic and selfless as people may have been, no one would ever consider patterning their lives after the actions taken by people living in the United States following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In this way, the earliest days of the Ecclesia as recorded in the book of Acts does not serve as a blueprint as to how the Ecclesia should interact with one another on into perpetuity. So with all that in mind, Lord willing, next time, we'll look at the event that many attempt to pattern their modern churches after. You know, the stuff that happened in the days following Pentecost. But until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 